So we are in the last um, church of the seven churches of Revelation. And looking in chapter 3, we're wrapping this series up. And so we are in verses 14 through 22 this morning. Read along with me. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful, and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent." Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, as we look into your word this morning, I pray that we would Take away whatever it is you would have us to take away this morning, that little nugget of truth that you want us to apply in our lives so that we will leave here different than when we came in. Father, I pray for your spirit to move throughout this place and in particular through me as I communicate your word to your children that each one of us might grow and learn and be transformed more into the likeness of Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Laodicea is um, the farthest south of all the seven churches. If we had a map and looked at it, you would see the churches kind of wrap around. It's almost like a postal route that they went on, and so the churches would go around and uh, Laodicea is kind of at the southern tip. It's about 50 miles south of Philadelphia that we talked about last week. They are a booming city. They got it going on. They have theaters. They, matter of fact, they're the only place even better than Ephesus. Ephesus had this massive theater that they had. Well, Laodicea had two of them. They had marketplaces, libraries. They had medical facilities. They had all sorts of things going on. They were incredibly Wealthy. They were so wealthy that if you remember last week, we talked about in Philadelphia how they had that big earthquake that happened in about around 17 AD that just leveled the cities there and that Rome came in and helped them build up their city and, and exempted them from having to pay taxes for five years. But when it came time to start paying those taxes back, Philadelphia wasn't quite ready for it. And not only that, they kind of came in because of the debt and everything. They said, hey, we're going to kind of wipe out your olive crops and we're going to put in crops that we can stuff we can eat. And so that was not something that Philadelphia embraced and was happy about. But Laodicea, they just said, we don't need your money. Rome, you can keep your money. We're going to build this up. And that's how rich they were. 
There were three main economies here. One was a big banking industry. There were trade routes that went through three different trade routes that came through Laodicea from all sorts of places. And that's where people would bring their money, their gold. If you remember up in Sardis, there was a gold rush up there. Man, they, they, they learned how to purify that gold and refine it so that it would separate it and make it more valuable. Man, Laodicea was the place where they got the big idea, hey, let's create a banking industry down here so that, so that we can kind of gather in all this wealth from outside and everything. Medical, they were huge in medical. In particular, with eye doctors, there was an eye salve that they created from, the, from a riverbed there, the, the, the paste or whatever they made, they were able to put over the eyes to help eliminate this, this eye disease that was around there. And just the textile industry, the, the, the clothing especially, they were huge. And you're going to see each of these areas in this story. That's why I want us, when I, when I tell these stories, I just don't tell them just to say, well, you know, here's some fun thing, fun facts about Laodicea. No, these, they're going to come up in this story, just like when we were talking about Sardis and their wealth and, and things like that in Philadelphia and what went on there. Well, I just don't tell these stories because I like to tell stories. I do like to tell stories, but that's not why I'm sharing all this. So as we go into this book. Remember all of those things, and we'll get more into some of those things here in a little bit. But look at the very first verse there in verse 14. It says, the angel of the church of Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of creation of God says this. Just like last week, or every one of the weeks we've gone through this, the introduction, the description of Jesus, that's when, when they describe Jesus in these early verses in all of these places, they are they are mostly this almost word for word out of chapter one. When John turns around, he hears the voice, he turns around, he sees Jesus there, and as he describes him, all of those descriptions are coming up in those first verses to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to all those church, all of those things. Last week and this week, they're not. This week, he says, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of creation of God says this. Amen, we know what that is. It's just, it's, it's just a, we say it after meals. We say it when, when someone says something that's really profound. We go, amen. And, uh, you know, there's churches where there are people. I remember when I was in college, I used to sit off to the left with three or four other guys. And we were kind of that little amen corner that when the pastor said something really profound, we just kind of went, amen, or tell it, or, you know, something like that. We were very much into that kind of thing and, 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 and felt like we had to help the pastor sometimes. And so that was, the amen was just like saying, yes, that is true, so be it. All of those things, that's what amen means. And here he's saying, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. The beginning of the creation of God. Now, he didn't just throw this in there because it's true. In this neck of the woods where Laodicea was, they were in close proximity to two other cities where there were two other churches, Hierapolis and Colossae. All right, matter of fact, we read about them at the end of Colossians in a couple of places. In Colossians 4, chapter 13, Paul is writing to them. He's wrapping up the letter and he's saying, For I testify for him. He's talking about Epaphras. Epaphras, more than likely, was the guy who planted the church there. And it's more than likely he planted this church and the one in Hierapolis as well. But he says, For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. And then in verse 16, 
Chapter 4, verse 16, when this letter is read among you, the letter that they're reading from the church of Colossae, when, they, when this letter is read among you, have it also read to the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. And so there were, there were three churches there. And if you remember, Epaphras was that guy. More than likely, he came out of the uh, missional training center that Paul set up in Ephesus way back in his second missionary journey when, they, when he was trying to go and do what he typically does, go into the synagogues. He was there trying to witness the people. They pushed back on him. They argued with him. He backed up. He took the disciples with him. They went into the halls of Tyrannus there in Acts 19 verses 8 through 10. And it says that over two-year period he taught in the halls of Tyrannus so that all of Asia heard the word of the Lord is what it said. All of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And when all of Asia heard the word of the Lord, it is no doubt that there are churches. Matter of fact, if all, most, if not all of these churches, the seven churches, probably started way back then, 40, 50 years earlier, when Paul was there in Ephesus doing his training to the people as they would come through and he would send them out. Because there's indications if you read through Colossae, and we've talked about this before, but for those of you who haven't been here, in Colossae, there are indications where Paul says things like, I, I long to see your face. I know you haven't seen mine. He, he makes references of this. He, he, he's never been there. And he's wanting to come see them. And so, but here he, he, he shows that there's this unique relationship with those three, three cities. And in those three cities, especially in Colossae, we're going to see where Paul is addressing this, this blasphemous teaching that Jesus was just some created being. Yeah, he was a good teacher. How many of us have heard that one before, right? He's a good teacher. He might, I'll even give it to you. He's a prophet. But he ain't all he says he, 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 says he, he who he says he is. I want us to look over in Colossians. Hold your finger here. Turn over to Colossians chapter 1. I want you to read this with me because he's addressing this as he's talking to the church in Colossae, and no doubt, when Jesus is using this as an example of a, when Paul is writing to, saying that the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. This is what he says, starting chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Here Paul is just telling the church in Colossae, he has been around from the beginning. And all of creation was through him and by him and for him. And so here when he says, the amen, the true and faithful witness, the beginning of the creation of God. He is just cementing the fact that all these years this teaching has been going on. If you remember in the other churches, they, in, in the letters, they attacked the, whether it was those who were following the teachings of Balaam or those who were following the teachings of the Nicolaitans. 
He's always addressing something as, that's going on in those churches. Here he's just cementing the fact that Jesus is from the beginning of creation of God. And he says this in verse 15, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Um, out of all the churches, this is probably one of the biggest rebukes that we read in all the churches. We see some of them that are just doing terrible jobs. There's some that are, they've got good things going on, but they're allowing bad things to happen in their churches. There's all sorts of things going on. But here, he is just basically saying, but you're, you know, because of your condition, because of the situation you find yourself, the literal translation in this is not, I want to spit you out of my mouth, is you make me want to throw up. You make me sick to my stomach. It actually, we, we could throw in the word vomit if we wanted to. You make me want to vomit. That's not a good thing to hear from God. Think about it. You're standing before him and he just says, you know, I'm getting a little queasy here just looking at you. That's not what you want to hear. And so here, and, and think about this also. I keep reminding us of this. This is being read so that the church in Ephesus hears this. The church in Sardis is hearing this. The church in Smyrna is hearing this. All of them are going, whoa, we might be bad, but we are not like the Laodiceans. Man, they make him sick to his stomach. But I don't want us to get the idea here. A lot of times when we, re when we read this thing about being hot or cold, we, we're we're, it comes across as, and, and, and listen, I'm not going to disregard this and say that this is absolute. Spiritually hot and spiritually cold, but lukewarm is somewhere in the middle where you have, you're trying to straddle the line and you're not made up your mind if you're going to commit one way or the other. Yes, there could be some truth to that. Spiritually hot, spiritually cold, you're lukewarm. Make up your mind which side you want to be on. If you can't make up your mind, if you're not going to commit one, man, I don't want to have anything to do with you. But I believe there's more going on with this when we know about those other two cities that they're in close relationship with. You see, Hierapolis was just up the road a little ways, and they were known, people would travel, they were like a resort area. People would come for their thermal pools. They would come, and that's where they came, and they would soak whether it's for healing or just relaxation or whatever, they would come and soak in those healing pools of Hierapolis. Colossae, higher up in the, they had these mountain streams that would come down. They were cool, refreshing mountain streams. And Laodicea had one serious problem. They had a water problem. Laodicea, they, the water they had there was terrible. And when they tried to pipe it in from Hierapolis and from Colossae, they, this tells you how rich they are. Man, they built these huge aqueducts that went miles across these plains, out of the mountains and in these plains and all that. Miles of aqueduct. By the time it got to them, there was nothing hot or cold about that water. Absolutely nothing hot or cold about it. Matter of fact, when travelers would come into the city, like I said, there were three major trails, crossroads coming in. If they come to a water source, they would kind of put it up their mouth. And what would happen? Many times historians say they would put it up their mouth. If they were not used to it, put it up their mouth and spit it out. That's what happened in, in those cases. And so here, I believe that what he is saying here, yes, spiritually hot, spiritually cold, are you, are you straddling the line? Have you, are you not making a commitment one way or the other and all that? You know, I, 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 can, I can go along with that to a certain extent, but to, to, to ignore 
when Jesus in all of his letters to these churches is pulling out historical, geographical, uh, religious facts from those regions and he's trying to make a point, I believe here the point he is making is is that you are, there is nothing therapeutic or healing about you in your walk. You, how are you in the community around you offering anything, offering healing to anybody around you how are you in your community around you whether it's your family the co-workers your schools whatever it is how are you refreshing to anybody whether on the one end you're so legalistic that you can't you know enjoy christ you just, there's everything from dress codes and 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 and, and this you know di just different things that you whereas on the other side you're so liberal you just allow anything to come in you're eclectic in your beliefs you just oh that sounds good i'll grab that that sounds good i grab that there is nothing refreshing or therapeutic about either side and here i believe what he is saying is that you make me sick to my stomach because you are not being Christ to the community around you. You are not being Christ in Laodicea. Because you say I am rich and have nothing, or excuse me, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. He starts off, you guys think you've got it all together. You don't need anything. You're rich. You're wealthy. That's on the material level. But here he starts introducing the second level. He starts talking about the second level. But you are wretched and miserable and blind and naked and poor. It's contrast to what he said they think they are. Because remember, they got it. Man, they are wealthy. Just a booming economy. Money coming in, people wealthy there, people are having a great time and all that. And even in the church, probably having a great time there in the church in Laodicea. But Jesus is looking at that other level. He's looking at that spiritual level. And you have no idea that you are just miserable and wretched. And he uses these three words. He talks about being poor, blind, and naked. What were those three major economies they had? Banking, ISAV. And clothing. He's starting to tie in, letting people to see that you guys got it all together in this stuff, but man, you are missing out on so much. You are missing the mark. You are, it's kind of like I've had, I've had conversations with, with, with my sons. I've had conversations with colleagues when I was overseas. I've had colleagues with other pastors in our association. I've had conversations with even some of you in this church that talk about that, that as we pursue the goals that we have out in front of us, whatever those goals might be. It might be success. It might be a family and children. It might be a nice home and a car. It might be certain luxuries and certain... And listen, I'm not saying any of those things are wrong, but to pursue those things apart from Christ, you will miss out on so much because I know people who have pursued Christ and those things, they didn't get there but they are peace and joy in their life. But I also know people that have pursued those things, got those things, and are wondering what's next. 
What can I get next? There's no peace. There's no joy. They're always striving for something more. Christ is the ultimate. He is the one that he is, he's sitting here saying, you are missing out. You've got all this material wealth. You've got all this luxury. You've got all these comforts and things that, yeah, the world would love to have. Oh, but you people are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And what is sad, what is, sad is that he says, and you don't even know it. Man, you don't even know it. I advise you, in verse 18, I advise you to buy for me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will, be, will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. He's trying to give them something in the midst of this second layer on this first level where they're going for this. They've got, they've got money in the bank. They've got food on the table. They've got clothes on their back. They've got a roof over their head. They've got a job to go to. They've got friends to hang out with. They've got social environments and clubs that they participate in. They've got a library and a theater. And they've got all of these things going on. My counsel to you is to buy gold refined by fire from me. Now, gold refined by fire is, uh, is, is usually symbolic of, uh, of, of like faith or something like that. I just want to read to you real quick in 1 Peter chapter 1. Listen along to what it says here in 1 Peter chapter 1. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. You greatly rejo rejoice with joy and inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This gold he's talking about is just this proof when the fire, when, when gold is refined, you can see the purity of the gold. The same thing about our faith, about our lives. When we are refined by fire, what is going to rise to, what, what is going to burn away and what is going to remain? In our lives. And what he's saying here is that when refined by fire, this gold, don't let our faith be hooked to the material things that we have because when the fire comes, that's going to burn away. Don't let, it be, don't let it be connected with your social standing because that will burn away. Don't let it be connected to anything else. Anything else. Buy it, get it from me, is what he says. He says, white garments, I want to give you white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. A couple of things here we talked about uh, when, uh, in one of the letters earlier. He says that, and you will be clothed in white if you overcome. And we talked about how white at the time is a, is, is a sign of purity, but it's also a, a symbol of that bride that Christ wants at, when, when, he, when he takes his bride to him, to heaven, the marriage and all that between Jesus and the church. White is a sign of purity. But we, ourselves, we can't do anything to make ourselves pure. We can't do anything. I don't care how much money we have. I don't care how many clubs we're a part of. I don't care what organizations we oversee. I don't care what pa churches we pastor. I don't care what churches we're a member of. I don't care any of that stuff. We can't do anything to earn the purity of the white garment. It reminds me of Adam and Eve. 
Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. They disobey God. What do they do? They realize, oops, I'm naked. They go hide themselves. and They start trying to put together some fig leaves to cover their nakedness. God shows up. What does he do? He makes skins. He gives them skins to cover their shame. Those fig leaves, what they did, what they did for themselves was not good enough. It was one of the first, symb- uh, one of the first opportunities that we see where the, 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 the sacrifice was made so that they could have something to cover the shame of their sin. And so here we've got the example of this white garment. It's as if when we stand before God, what does he see? If we're in Christ, he sees Christ. We are clothed in Christ. He sees his purity, his righteousness. We are never good enough for God. Only in Christ are we good enough for God. And so this idea of the white garment and then the eye salve is just something there. It's just so that we can spiritually see. Remember we talked about the first level and then the second level where where Jesus is trying to point out the spiritual side of things. Here he's just saying, and uh, I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Because what did he say earlier? He said, you don't even know it. You don't even see the condition you're in. You can't even fathom the idea that with all your things that you have, that you're not in a good place before God. And remember, he's not, he's not talking to the Laodiceans out there. He's talking to the church. He's talking to the church here. And yes, there is, there, 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 there can be this element where there are lost people in the church. There are unregenerate people in churches. But there are also regenerate followers of Christ in churches. And so here he's talking to this church, whether they are lost or whether they are saved, they've accepted Christ, and then they just have not done all that Christ wants them to do. They have not lived up to all things Christ wants them to live up to. They have still got their foot in the door of the church, and they still have a foot in the world that they want to live in, that they want to thrive in. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. No one wants to hear that. I reprove those whom I love. I I promise you, Shannon's not going to want to hear from me when I say, baby, I love you, but got some reproving and discipline to do here. That ain't going to happen in my household, all right? That's just not going to go over very well. We, we sharpen each other. We, we encourage each other. We, we do challenge each other on things when we see things on that. But I'm not about to go up there and put a mushroom cloud over my wife's head if I think there's something going on there. That's just not going to happen. But he says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. It actually comes from a passage in Proverbs 3.12 where he says, For who the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. In another passage here in Hebrews chapter 12, we talked about the first parts of this last week, I think it was, where we were talking about running the race and focusing on the, what's on the other side of the finish line. Not that death is what we focus on because everyone's going to get to this finish line of, in our life of death. And it's not that you just want to run up to that and go, okay, whew, made it. No, Christ is on the other side of that finish line. We want to run into the arms of Christ. That's what it means to finish the race well. Not just to get up to the finish line and go, okay, 
I'm done. No, we run into the arms of Christ. That's the idea we see up here in the first few verses where he talks about running the race, fixing your eyes on Jesus. But down in verse, starting around verse 5, he says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Okay, that is, that is out of Proverbs. You can tell. It's, uh, but th- then Paul, or, or the writer in Hebrews here goes on. I believe it's Paul, but the writer of Hebrew goes on. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son, is, what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of, of spirits and live? For they disciplined us a short time as seemed, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All right? You need to get that. Discipline is not just act right. Do the right things so that we can become holy. We, can be, we become, we share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. Anyone here enjoy Discipline. I remember as a child when my dad would send me to my room, he was, not a, he was not a believer, but he would always say this, son, go to your room, we about to hold prayer meeting. That's kind of what, because he knew what was happening, I was in there praying. Oh, let's get this over with fast, or let's not let this be bad, or all these, I was, oh, I won't do this again, you know, whatever. I was in there, you know, just asking, and, 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 and you know, whenever it came, it came. Seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. See, God's not just going to let us go to our own ways and do our own thing and, and practice what we want to practice just because this is more comfortable, it's more convenient, it's more likely that we're going to enjoy this on, on, this, on this first level, on this materialistic level, on this level on earth. He's not just going to leave us there. He will discipline us. And he does it for a reason, not not just because we are opposed to him. He's doing it to help us grow, to help us mature, to help us be more grounded in him. He goes on to say, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and will dine with him and he with me. Again, we got a picture here. This Again, this is a picture of uh, used many times of there's a door and Jesus is standing there knocking, wanting someone to open up and invite Jesus into their hearts or in Jesus into their lives and all that. And you can use it that way, but I believe what it's talking about here, he's talking not about necessarily about salvation, but he's talking about fellowship. He's talking about a genuine, authentic fellowship that he wants to have with his church. Remember, he's writing to the church. All right, yeah, and they're, 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 like I said earlier, I'm sure there are unregenerate people there, but I'm sure there are regenerate people there as well. But he's writing to the church there, and he's, he, he, he writes, when he says, those whom I love, I discipline and reprove, those whom he loves are those who are in a part of the family. He's, he's wanting to, them to grow in their holiness, in their righteousness. And, and so here he's, he's writing to the church. They're already saved. This knocking at the door is not necessarily only about salvation, but it is also his desire to be in intimate fellowship with his church. Jesus desires so much 
to be a part of our lives. Collectively, yeah. But individually, whether I'm in a workplace, whether I'm on campus, whether I'm in the mall, at a restaurant, wherever I am, in my neighborhood, he still desires fellowship with me. That is something that I have to be intentional about. Jesus is there. I have to be regularly intentional about wanting to be in fellowship with him. And, 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 and it comes, comes down to the fact of, of, do I want to pursue him? Earlier he says, be zealous and repent. Be zealous. That, that, that is really, an, there's an intentionality in that. It is, it is all about wanting to pursue Christ. It's an intentional, a regular intentional act of pursuing Christ. And here he's saying, I want to come in and dine with you. I want to come in and have fellowship with you. I want to come in and be a part of your life. I just don't want to be there for you on Sunday mornings. I just don't want to be there when it's convenient for you. I want to be there with you all the time. And that relationship is what's going to help us as we're refined by fire, as we're able to drape ourselves in the white garments, drape ourselves in Christ and, 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 and be considered righteous. The ISAVs are understanding. We will not understand spiritually anything, but the spirit within us will help us understand all the things that we need to understand at the, at the moments that we find ourselves in. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul tells a young pastor, Timothy, as he's pastoring the church in Ephesus a while back, he says, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure or if we are victorious or if we overcome, because you using similar language here, but he said, if we endure, we will also reign with him. We will also be with him. This is, to, this is, again, just like the other letters when it talked about the pictures that we get. When you put all seven of these letters together, when it says, he who overcome, and you start seeing the big picture of the celebration that we're going to get an invitation to and how we are going to be there with Christ reigning with him, how we're going to be in the new Jerusalem and the, and the new earth and how we are going, all of, these, all of these things that it talked about at each of these segments, at each of these churches, when they said, to those who overcome, just go back and read those and be encouraged by that. Those things are worth, worth fighting the good fight of persevering through difficulties. Those things are worth it when you think about overcoming, being victorious, being faithful. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He, every church, he says this. And again, he writes this to every one of the churches, and I can't emphasize this enough. He didn't, he's not saying, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to you to Laodiceans. He's saying, let him hear what the saying to all the churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Sardis, Philadelphia, Thyatira, all of the churches, all of them. We bring that to modern day. What is the Spirit saying to us? 
What is the Spirit saying to us? As we've worked through these seven churches, as we identified some things that the Spirit, that Jesus is talking to these churches, that as John writes these things down, and this letter is circulated throughout this postal route from Ephesus to Laodicea, as we see this happen, as we see this play out, was there something in there that the Spirit began talking to you about? Was there something in there that the Spirit began challenging you about? If you have ears to hear it and the Spirit is talking to you, do not push that away. Do not shove that to the side. Jesus is saying, pursue me. Embrace me. Follow me. And if it's my will for you that you gain all these other spiritual or physical things, these material things, then yeah, it's it's going to happen, but you're still going to be pursuing me. I promise you, I am a better husband because I pursued Christ first. Because there was a time when I, I was pursuing my own agenda. Man, I wanted, a, I wanted a good marriage and I had an idea of what my marriage was supposed to be like. Man, you don't want to know what was in this head about what a good marriage was supposed to be like. It was not a pretty picture. Early on in our marriage, I was not very good to Shannon. But she being gracious and patient with me and the father being gracious and patient with me and other men speaking into my life has helped me learn more and more and more And I am a better husband because I pursue Christ before I pursue my wife first. Because as I pursue Christ, he says, man, pursue that woman. As I pursue Christ, he says, pursue that career. As I pursue Christ, he says, you pursue this. You pursue that. You go for this. I'm speaking to you. I'm laying this out before you. But you pursue me first. That's the challenge that we have. He He wants us. He doesn't just want us to experience partial joy, but the fullness of joy. Partial peace, but a peace that is beyond understanding. He wants us to experience all that he has for us. And as we pursue him passionately, intentionally, and not just when it's convenient, we will be refreshing to the people around us. We will be therapeutic and healing to people around us. We will help sharpen people. We will help encourage people. We will be what Christ wants us to be. Not just in this building, but in this community and in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces. We will be what Christ wants us to be. What is that going to look like for you? I want us to spend a few moments just letting the Spirit speak to us right now. As Eric comes forward and we wrap this this series up, I just want you to listen to what the Spirit is saying right now in your heart, in your mind. Spend a few moments silently thinking. Father, as we've gone through this series and we've seen churches who were theologically strong but got caught up into business as usual and lost their passion for you, Father. We saw churches that were just experiencing persecution from the rules and the 
other people around them that were forcing them to participate in pagan cultures and pagan worship. They were, we saw where a church was caught up in a gold rush and all the things that went with that. The, Father, all of these letters, as you, were, as you were communicating to your church, you're asking us, and yes, us here at Redeemer, us here in 2019, you're asking us, are we pursuing you? Are we focused on you? Are we allowing you to transform us more into the likeness of you? Lord, there is no man that can make that happen. There is no person who can make that happen in their own lives or in anybody else's life. But Father, you have given us everything we need from your presence in our lives the example of Jesus in your word and the word itself, the spirit within us, you have given us everything we need. We have no excuses. So, Father, I pray that your church, your children, your bride would passionately, intentionally pursue you and all the other things would just fall the secondary to the wayside help us father as you have loved us with a great love help us walk in a way that is worthy of your great love towards us in Christ's name we pray amen